We've been around 110 years. I think part of my job is to make sure we're here for another 110 years. This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series helps us to make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank and Maine Technology Institute, or MTI. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it, a story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, and may lose value. Hi, everyone. I'm Renee Cordes with the Main Biz Podcast team, speaking today with Brian Elo, CEO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Southern Maine. Brian is here today to talk about his transition from the private sector to the nonprofit world and what it was like to succeed the person who ran the organization for 30 years, along with the timing of taking the reins at the onset of COVID. Let's find out more. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you here today. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. So before we get into your story, Brian, our listeners may have heard of Boys and Girls Clubs, but may not know what they're all about. Can you just give us a brief snapshot? Sure, I'd love to. The Boys and Girls Clubs of Southern Maine is an organization that's been in the Portland area for 110 years. And our primary mission is to make sure that kids graduate from high school with a plan for the future. And we provide safe spaces and mentoring relationships and a number of programs to help support them along their journey to graduation from high school. And there are boys and girls clubs all over the United States. That isn't that right? Yes, there's a national organization and over 2,700 clubs around the country. Our particular club is the Boys and Girls Clubs of Southern Maine, and we handle primarily the areas from Augusta South in Southern Maine. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where are you from, where you grew up? Oh, sure. Well, I grew up in Massachusetts, but I have lots of roots in Maine. My mother's multi-generations from Maine and grew up in Portland, and I spent all my summers on Sebago Lake at a small cottage that our family had there. And right after we got married, my wife and I moved to Maine and actually both of our kids were born here. And then because my job took me back to Boston, we went away for 30 years and came back to Maine about five years ago. I love it. So tell us where, where you went to college, a Connecticut college and what your major was. Sure. So I, after graduating from high school, I went on to Connecticut college in New London, Connecticut, pretty typical liberal arts degree. I, I majored in organizational psychology and had no idea what I was going to do with that when I graduated, but <laughs> felt like a lot of people ended up in a wonderful career after college and had a good experience there as well. Sounds intriguing. And, and what was your career ambition at that time? Did you have an interest in the business world? Well, I knew I had an interest in human behavior and the business world. And that combination, what I didn't know is how to apply that the best way in an organization. So I was lucky enough to get uh, connected with an organization where I spent most of my career and was able to apply some of the, some of the training, but in a different way. 
So that's a good segue to, to the next question. So what did you do uh, right after college? So I went to work for a company called Marsh and McLennan. And what they are is a risk management consulting firm and insurance brokerage operation. And I spent the bulk of my career there and working with uh, clients and organizations to help them assess risk and finance risk and to be able to deal with sort of the things that life throw at corporations that interrupt their businesses. <laughs> and you had a number of roles during your time at, at Marsh. So what were some of the, the different roles that you had in the company? Sure. Well, I started out like a lot of people in a technical area and and, and uh, realized that there was a level of detail there that I was not uh, best skilled at. So I moved on to some other areas of, I ran the Boston office at one juncture. I ran a sales organization at one juncture. And at the tail end of my career, I was the chief client officer for North America. And Brian, was it a high pressure environment? Those sound like pretty, pretty tough um, things to be dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was because organizations are pressured competitively and globally. They're pressured from dynamics that they don't necessarily know what's going to hit them each day. And when you're on the forefront of supporting clients, you need to be there when they need you the most. And that coupled with the fact that the particular organization was a Fortune 200 a public corporation. So it wasn't like they weren't hard driving in terms of wanting more and more results each year as well. And I know that you were working for the company on September 11th. Uh, weren't you supposed to have been at the World Trade Center that day? Yes, I was uh, actually supposed to be in the Trade Center. We had a number of people working there and I was supposed to speak to our energy group that particular morning. And the day before I had made a decision because of another conflict to not go down. So, you know, I was, I was lucky, but the organization wasn't lucky that day. We'd lost 300 people and it was, it was a very difficult time. I'm sure it was. So Brian, let's fast forward to 2020. You retired from Marsh after I believe 40 years with the company, including uh, a very long time uh, in a management role. What was your retirement plan? What was your original retirement plan? Well, my original retirement plan was always that I wanted to transition at the tail end of my corporate career and work in a not-for-profit atmosphere and lend some skills to something that, you know, I felt passionate about. And it also, because, you know, uh, consulting jobs often take you away from your own community. And so for me, I was also looking for an opportunity that allowed me to embed myself in a community and support a community and be a part of a community. Now, Brian, you did already have some experience um, in the nonprofit world before you left Marsh. Tell us about that. Sure. Yeah, I had the opportunity to sit on the boards of a number of different organizations over the years. And one in particular, which correlates, you know, quite closely to the Boys and Girls Clubs was an organization down in Boston called Crossroads for Kids. And I was on their board for many years, served as their board chair for some time. And they're an organization that supports about a thousand inner city kids in the Boston area through camping programs and, and helps them, you know, build their futures as well. And you had you were also on a board member of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Southern Maine as well. Yes, as uh, my wife and I transitioned back to Maine and moved back to Maine while I was still, you know, working primarily out of New York, a good friend of mine actually sits on the board of the Boys and Girls Clubs and knew of my interest in youth development and had asked me if I would join the board of the Boys and Girls Clubs. So I actually had been on the board for four or five years or so uh, prior to taking on the CEO role. 
Interesting. So then in April 2019, Bob Clark announced his retirement leading the Boys and Girls Clubs of Southern Maine after 30 years at the helm. I believe he gave them about a, a year's advance notice uh, so they could find a successor. You were serving on the board at the time, I believe, and you guys launched a nationwide search for a successor. Yes. I mean, Bob had done a marvelous job, you know, building the organization and supporting the youth in the area. And he was very kind to give us a long notice so that we could transition appropriately. And the board took on a national search and it just happened to coincide with my own timing of retiring anyway from a corporate job. And so, you know, I spoke with some of the other board members and raised my hand and said, you know, I'm, I'm not another 30 year person like Bob was. But, but I'd be more than happy to lend my skills if it made sense for the organization. So, you know, I really wanted them to go through the surge and pick the right person, whether that was me or not, for the right time. So it's a, it was a good process, though. Right. And I, I read that when he announced his retirement, he talked about that job being a labor of love, the honor of a lifetime. <laughs> you know, were those big shoes to fill? Yeah, they were giant shoes to fill because uh, he really is a youth development expert. And candidly, I'm not a youth development expert. I have some insights because of my board work and and other things, but that isn't necessarily the this number one skill that I'm bringing to the table. We have wonderful people working here or experts in that area. I think what I'm doing is augmenting it with some other areas around strategy and and you know, we've been around 110 years. I think part of my job is to make sure we're here for another 110 years. Brian, I believe you then recused yourself uh, from the board involved in this search once you became a candidate. So what was the process? What was the vetting process like? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I did feel that it was important for the board to make its own decisions without my involvement. So I did recuse myself. And I went through the same process that all the candidates did. I met with the recruiter. I had various interviews with staff. I had various interviews with different board members. You know, there was a whole pretty rigorous process for several months actually that went on. And, and I was glad that the board did to treat me any differently in that, in that respect. You know, it was important to me, but I also think it was important for the organization to do whatever, what the right thing to do was at the end of the day. And this was probably the first time in, in decades that you were applying for a job, you know, putting forward your resume, interviewing. W was there any bit of weirdness in that? Well, there was because I had to actually put on paper, uh, you know, who I was and what I was all about. And, you know, if you hadn't done that in a long time, it, it does make you pause and think about what really is most relevant. I also called on my two young sons who are in the business world to make sure that I was current in terms of the look and feel of my resume oh, uh, right. and, and other too. things. And, you know, it, you know, all of the things that are important, but it, but it was an interesting process because it really required me to reflect on my, my skills and what it is that I actually could bring to the Boys and Girls Club that would be helpful to them. And, and how confident were you that, that you would get the job? Were, were there any nerves? Yeah, I would say there were nerves. I mean, in one respect, I mean, I was going to search around for a position in a not-for-profit world regardless. And on the one hand, you know, it, you know, it really required you to answer the questions and be thoughtful about what you really can bring to the table. And so I think there's a little bit of nervousness around that for anybody. But on the other hand, I wasn't really nervous because I knew the organization was going to do the right thing. You know, there are some very qualified people out there that run other boys and girls clubs and 
other not-for-profits and candidly have some skills that I might not have. So, you know, I think there's a certain amount of nervousness around that in terms of whether you really do you have the right skills or not. Sure. So, Ryan, tell us about how you found out you, you got the job. Well, you know, I got the call sort of towards the December of 2019 and said that the board had made a decision to hire me. And I was very, very excited about it. And, you know, so they made an announcement publicly in January of 2020. And there was a transition period because I was still wrapping up my corporate role for another couple of months. Bob was leaving at the, in the April timeframe, you know, March, April. And so the, the timing worked out so that I could transition out of one area, take a little break and then start up in the new job. So you did have some overlap when you started with, with Bob Clark. Yes. I mean, he and I had a number of conversations during that time for him to download on me and give me some insights and help train me a little bit, you know, in terms of some of the things that went on. And then we overlapped for a week or so when I actually started. So that was helpful as well. So your start date, I believe, was March 23rd of 2020. What do you remember about that day? Well, mostly that the pandemic was really coming at the world in full force. And so, you know, my first decision literally was I shut the clubs down and, you know, safety of our kids that we support and safety of our staff was paramount to me. And until we really had an understanding of what was going on and what, what was going to be required, you know, I wanted to make sure that everybody went home and, and was safe as a, as a first step. And your, your very first day you were working remotely, you could not meet the staff in person. Yeah, we, we definitely went remote and we, we built the zoom skill like everyone else in the world did and, and worked on that. But we also responded to the kids that we support in a very meaningful way. You know, we're a federally funded food program and food insecurity for the kids that come to our clubs is a big, big issue. And so literally that same day, we started a grab and go meal program at all of our clubs so that the families and the kids could still get the food that they were used to having when they came to the clubs. When you said you started that program, that was when? That was the very same day. That evening, we had food prepared at our door for the kids, even though we had shut the clubs down. Talk about uh, baptism by fire, as they say. Yes, uh, that's, that's for sure. And I was lucky enough that we had a number of our staff who knew that that was the right thing to do, that that was, should have been one of the number one priorities, and it was. Great. Well, we'll now take a very short break to hear from one of our sponsors, and then we'll hear more about what those uh, first few months were like for you. Mainers have an unrivaled work ethic, an endless supply of ideas, a boundless energy to create, and the perseverance to not say it's done until it's done better than it was before, which is why the Maine Technology Institute was created to support, nurture, and invest in those qualities and make Maine a place where ideas and people can thrive. To see how MTI supports innovation, go to maintechnology.org. That's maintechnology.org. I felt that it was really important to go into it by just listening to what they had to say. They're the ones that see the things that are going well, that aren't going well. So you just really have to turn on your listening and take a step back. Brian Elow was just telling us about becoming CEO of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Southern Maine in March 2020. Now that probably seems like another era. 
First of all, Brian, it seems to be becoming uh, more commonplace that nonprofit leaders are called CEOs rather than executive director. Is there a reason for change in the terminology? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I think that, you know, a lot of organizations still use executive director. As you said, I think more and more are seeing the CEO role being more more true, if you will, to what the role really is. And, you know, a lot of not-for-profits face the same pressures that for-profit companies, you know, there's competition, there's, there's revenue, you know, issues from a donors, there's execution issues, there's strategies. And so I think, I think that's where the evolution's coming from, but, it, but essentially it's the same role, executive director and CEO. Interesting. So the time that you started, you were in charge of um, how many staff members? So we have about, depending upon the seasonality of some of the number of kids in our clubs, we have about 50 to 55 employees here in our organization. And so that first day, everybody was at home. How did you introduce uh, yourself to people? The first thing we did is we got the leadership team together on a Zoom call, and I made sure that we all stayed connected and stayed, and that I understood what they viewed as being the priorities I saw you know, what it is that we needed to do. That became our mode of conversation and connection, you know, for several weeks, you know, during that very uncertain early days of COVID. Right. And so, you know, succeeding somebody who was in that role for three decades would probably be daunting for anyone. Were there any areas where you felt you had to tread carefully, at least at the start? Anyone new coming into an organization in that kind of a role, it's all about building new relationships and trust with the people that are, have been here for a long time. And, you know, I felt that it was really important to go into it by just listening to what they had to say. They're the ones that see the things that are going well, that aren't going well. So you just really have to turn on your listening and take a step back. You may have some ideas in your head, but it's really important to not put those out until you really get a feel for what's going on. I see. And did you have any idea what the workplace culture was like before you joined? Because obviously it was a different role to be on the board. And now here you are a member of the staff leading the staff. It was definitely a question in my mind in terms of what the culture was all about. I always knew that they would do whatever it takes to support the kids. You know, that's just the fundamental mission. And everyone who works here is just so focused on that every day, which is great. What I didn't realize that I was so pleasantly surprised by is how innovative the staff could be on a very quick basis. I mean, the ability to go to grab and go meals on day one and pivot to that. We started online programming within three days and that was all new to everybody. There was nothing in it that they should have known how to do that in the past. You know, I was very pleasantly surprised that it was a culture of creativity and a culture of getting things done and diving into things and not being afraid of it. So that was great. And obviously there was so much uncertainty at that time. Did you also have to, you know, provide reassurances to the staff, you know, in your first communications with them? Yes, very much so. I mean, a big part at the beginning was to settle everybody down. I mean, you know, it was a very uncertain time for health reasons. It was an uncertain time in terms of whether people were going to be able to keep their jobs. You know, I was fortunate or unfortunate, you know, because of the 9-11 experience and what I had to help the organization through during that time. But also the business of risk management is dealing with crises. 
Right. And I think, you know, fortunately, that's a skill that I have that I was able to help people think it through and calm down and focus on what's important and make sure that they felt supported during a pretty uh, trying time. And were you able to keep everyone employed during the pandemic? Yeah, we were very, very fortunate. I mean, uh, the early PPP loans, we were able to take advantage of that and keep people fully employed. We did have a few furloughs in that first summer. All of us took on, you know, a week or two here or there just to help out. But by the fall, we were all fully employed. And I was very, very pleased that we been able to keep everyone fully employed all the way through COVID. Brian, how would you describe your management style? You, you've sort of given some indications of that listening to people, but, you know, any, any differences you would point to to that of your predecessor in terms of leadership style? Yeah, I think my leadership style is one of putting trust in the individuals and letting them fly. You know, I think what I, what I have seen in other organizations and wanted to make sure it didn't happen here is a bottleneck. You know, I, I'm not the youth development expert. Other people are. And part of my job is to really give them the skills and empower them to be able to do what they think is the right thing to do. And then that gets coupled with some other skills that I perhaps was bringing to the table around longer term strategy, where to invest dollars for the best, you know, impact for more kids, all of those kinds of things. And so I think it's come together nicely between the two sort of sides of things. And what was the transition like for you going from the private sector to the nonprofit world? Well, that's a good question. I think the one thing that I noticed is, you know, those endless resources aren't around you. So it, it's <laughs> definitely, you know, more of a hands-on roll up your sleeves. Everybody's in the boat together atmosphere, which by the way is really pleasant, quite frankly. And so that was noticeable. And I think it's also noticeable that you really quickly have to talk to your constituents. We have donors, we have foundations, we have others um, that really have been very, very supportive and we're very thankful of it. But, but it was really clear that I needed to go talk to those people very quickly and make sure they knew what was going on as well. So Brian, you mentioned that you switched all your programming to online. So maybe you can just briefly tell us what programming you guys offered pre-COVID and then talk a little bit about how you shifted all that. So fundamental to it was, you know, we represent, you know, roughly 3,000 youth across Southern Maine and pre-COVID somewhere around 500 kids a day were in our various clubs. And so if you picture a world where you shut the clubs down and they can't come, we very much quickly wanted to be able to make sure that we connected with them. And so we started a Facebook page, uh, literally within three days and our team would provide programming throughout the day. And that programming could be reading to the younger children, just books on, you know, on online, on Facebook, providing some athletic skill building programs, some art programs, and, you know, it was a very scheduled thing in those early months around just making sure that there were activities out there that the kids could avail themselves of. And uh, the grab and go meals, what were those about? So those were not hot meals, which is what we normally do in the clubs when the kids are here, but they were meals and they were, you know, good protein and foods and milk and all of the things that we normally would provide. And they were provided in in paper bags. And because everyone was safe, they were presented on tables outside so that the families or kids could come up to the tables, take their food and then, and then go away. And, you know, during the first couple of years of COVID, I think we probably are well north of a hundred thousand meals that we served across all, all of our clubs. 
And, and the whole staff was was working remotely. Have you since gone back to the office? Yeah. So initially we were all remote, except for those people that needed to be there to help put the food out on the tables and other kinds of things. And then, and then they would work remotely. Starting last fall, a year ago in, in 2021, we were under contract with Portland, South Portland, Lewiston, and Auburn school districts to provide all-day programming for elementary kids on the days that they weren't going to school and to support the hybrid learning programs. And we supported about 350 kids a week under that contract that ran the whole year of 2021. And Brian, when did you go back to the office? When did you meet, you know, your staff for the first time in person? Yeah, it was probably at the mid to tail end of that first summer of 2020 when, you know, our offices, the way they're set up are separate enough that we can remain separate. And we had all the COVID protocols, you know, we would temperature test and, and masked and all of the things that were going on. And, but I didn't push people to come in, you know, it was, it was really do what you're comfortable doing. Um, myself, I can find a thousand things to do at home other than work sometimes. So <laughs> I'm sure we I, all can. I came and planted myself in my office, even if nobody else was here and made sure I worked from here, you know, for the time, but it took quite some time to get people back. That said, the staff that works with kids in that first fall, you know, they're, they're really candidly the ones, you know, way more than the administrative staff that we really wanted to take care of. They were like the teachers and they were on the front lines and they were with kids. And this is pre-vaccination days. So it was a very, you know, stressful time, you know, for many of our staff during that time, that particular early months. Sure. And what, what was it like for you when, when you were able to see people in person? Some of them, maybe you even had only met on screen during the pandemic. Yeah, it was a joy because you could actually have a conversation with somebody and really talk to them about how they're doing and you know, what are they wrestling with and all those kinds of things and getting around to our different locations and just seeing them was really, you know, quite something as well. It was definitely delayed. And are you still in touch with, with your predecessor? Do you, you know, keep him posted on what's happening at the clubs? Yeah, I'm away. Well, I certainly had a number of questions in the first year that, you know, until you go that first cycle, I would call him periodically and say, remind me what this was. And <laughs> He was very helpful with that. And then we have coffee from time to time and just keep him abreast. He's very interested in what the clubs are doing and how we're doing. And now that you've been in this role about for a while, what, what about this CEO role has surprised you uh, the most? Um, I think, I think what surprised me the most about this role is, is the magnitude of the number of kids who are still unsupervised every afternoon in, in Maine. You know, the, one of the things that through our studies we found is 40,000 kids in Maine are unsupervised in the afternoon and 20,000 of those kids are in our particular area of, my, of this organization. Wow. And so I think for all of us that that feels like an unacceptable situation. And we really need to rise up and do what we can do to support those kids and reach out to them. So I think one of the things that surprised me is while there are great organizations and a lot going on, there's still a ton more to be done, you know, you know, out there. And I think, I think that's, that's really where I'm spending a lot of my time right now is thinking about that. And do you ever wish you had made the move to the nonprofit world earlier? <laughs> well, that is a fabulous question. You know, I was lucky to have a wonderful career at Marsha McLennan, and I knew probably a year in advance that it was time to rotate out of that. 
And I could, could have done it earlier, but I wasn't really ready earlier either. So I think in retrospect, it all worked out the right time. But that said, I will tell you that working in this is very, very fulfilling in a way that a public corporation doesn't necessarily offer every day. So I've been very pleasantly surprised with it all. Great. And how are the Boys and Girls Clubs of Southern Maine doing now? I believe you recently added some new facilities, right? Yeah. So this past year, we opened up three new locations. So we're up to eight locations currently. We're working in King Middle School in Portland. We're opening up in the Lewiston Armory for a teen program. And we opened up a site with Avesta Housing up in Red Bank in the Red Bank area in South Portland. And we're going to continue to expand our hub and spoke model, you know, as we go forward into more middle schools and more environments as we go forward. So that's, that's been really great. Great. Well, sounds like the start of another eventful chapter. We'll now take uh, another short break and then we'll wrap up with some learnings uh, from your experience so far. Maine Biz is Maine's business news source in print, online, and in person. We inform, engage, and connect you to the business community throughout Maine. Subscribe to Maine Biz products today at mainebiz.biz. But I do think that it all sort of centers back on really sort of listening and trusting and working with people. I'm a big believer in what they call servant leadership, which is really my job is to make them successful, not the other way around. We are back talking to Brian Elo of the Boys and Girls Clubs of Southern Maine. Brian, what is uh, the fundraising climate like these days? Well, during COVID, Maine is a wonderful place, and I think uh, we all pulled together. And so during that time, we were supported by a number of individuals and foundations and corporations that stepped up to the table because they knew we needed it. And that's really terrific. I think going forward, you know, it really, for us, it's about building on that to expand and help more, even more kids. I think that's, you know, from a fundraising standpoint, it's, it's about getting the message out about how deep and wide this organization is. You know, I've always been surprised as I've been out and about how I think we've been underperforming in terms of communicating the breadth and depth of our organization, in addition to being known as the place where kids to go to play basketball, as an example. So, so there's a lot in front of us, but we're fortunate that donors and foundations understand our mission, which is really great. And will you keep some of the virtual programming in place that you started during the pandemic? Yes, we hope to expand that at some juncture. I, I imagine at some point we'll need to hire somebody to run that particular program versus doing it just kind of part-time with some of our existing staff. What we found during COVID is not only did it support the kids that we normally support, but there were some communities where we wouldn't necessarily be opening up because they're just not large enough in different parts of Maine, where some of those kids signed on. So we see it as being a forever program in the future, but we'll need to build the structure around that to make it really vibrant going forward. So Brian, now that you've been in this job for over two years, what are some of the things that you've learned about nonprofit leadership during this time? Well, I, I learned that, you know, a couple things. It's really important, as it is in any organization, but I think for not-for-profits, because people work in the environment or volunteer their time because they're really committed to the mission, that you need to spend a lot of time making sure that they are aligned, that they're taken care of, that you communicate frequently with them in terms of how things are going. Because people donate either their time or their treasures, you know, to support the mission, and it's because they care. 
And so I think that's one of the big learnings that, that, I, that I've had. I think another one that we have actually been addressing is not-for-profits sometimes miss the infrastructure that they need in order to continue to be sustainable over a long period of time. And I think that's one of my primary strategies is to modernize the organization. So we're investing in technology infrastructure, we're investing in facility infrastructure, staff training, and all the things that I think organizations need to do in order to really be sustainable over a long period of time. And I think that that was another learning that some modernization was really necessary. And Brian, on a more personal level, you know, what about succeeding someone who had been in a leadership role for a very long time? You know, there was a certain culture, maybe expectation. What are the, some of the lessons from that experience that you have taken with you? I think the transition period, you know, as I said, if you take the time to really listen to people, then you'll find out that they know some of the things that you're probably already thinking about. You know, every leader has a different bent to them. And anytime you make a change, it's important to, to align yourselves, if you will. Refreshingly, candidly, some of the things that I had been hoping to do are things that the staff was hoping that we would do, you know, <laughs> and per- perhaps hadn't been done in the past. And that's no fault of anyone's. It's just the way that it is. And I'm sure that someday when someone succeeds me, they'll look at it and say, well, we spent a lot of time in this area. How about this area? <laughs> Uh, So I don't think that's unusual, but I do think that it all sort of centers back on really sort of listening and trusting and working with people. I'm a big believer in what they call servant leadership, which is really my job is to make them successful, not the other way around. So, Right. Good. And for anyone currently working in the private sector, thinking about a transition to the nonprofit world like you have done, what any advice you would give? I would say dive in with with both feet and both arms, you know, it's a wonderful experience. And, and I think what you'll be most surprised about is how the skills that you might've developed in a, in a business related job translate very nicely into the not-for-profit world. And the not-for-profits really need those skills and, and really benefit from them. And that's good for society. It's good for our communities. So personally, I've found it very fulfilling. It's really wonderful. There's great people doing great things and I would encourage anybody to not be bashful about thinking about making that kind of a transition. This has been a production of MainBiz. Find out more about this podcast and other MainBiz media products at mainbiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank and Maine Technology Institute, or MTI. The MainBiz podcast team includes Renee Cordes, Will Hall, Allison Mason, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedanka. Logo and marketing design by Matt Selva. Subscribe to the Main Biz podcast at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2022.